All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins, and this week I am joined by John Halloran. How's it going, John? I'm doing well. How are you? Not too bad. We got five games, five NWSL games to talk about today, um, which is it seemed like we had some narratives continue. Some narratives become a little bit more intriguing. Uh, some middling results. We kind of got the whole bag here this week. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that I've been asking everybody. How did this weekend as a whole feel to you watching this breadth of games? It's a good question. I think that, you know, just to kind of, to go to your point about the narratives, I felt like most of it was probably the same as, as what we would have expected coming out of this, uh, these games. I think the one that would have been flipped in my opinion was the Chicago, North Carolina game, because, you know, if you had asked me to predict a score, you know, heading down to that game, I probably would have said three, one North Carolina based on how the teams had been playing. And, um, so that one definitely felt, uh, against kind of, uh, where we had been, uh, through the first few weeks of the season. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think, well, let's just dive into it. That was the first game of the weekend. It was the early afternoon game on Saturday. It was very hot. That's going to be a theme. Uh, Almost all of these games, other than the games, uh, the one game played out in Portland. I think the weather was pretty nice out there, but everything played either in the Midwest or the East Coast this weekend was dealing with some very hot temperatures. We don't get hydration breaks in Chicago a lot, but we got some uh, yesterday. So Chicago beat North Carolina one to nothing on a goal by Rachel Hill, though that's not really the story, right? The goal is not really the story here. It was the way Chicago contained the courage. And so a little bit of backstory to this. Chicago, I think one of the narratives, though I don't know how much everybody subscribes to it, but one of the narratives going into this match was this was maybe the first real game between the two teams after the 2019 final. They did play each other once in the Challenge Cup, um, but obviously that was in the group stage. Things were a little bit weird. Not Neither team was full strength. Um, and one of the things about that 2019 championship game from Chicago's perspective is that they had a very particular tactical plan that they wanted to go into that game. And then Tierna Davidson uh, hurt her ankle very badly, I think the Tuesday before that weekend. And so I think actually what we saw in this game against North Carolina was Chicago finally getting to run that idea of that sort of pivot five, three back to clog the North Carolina midfield but this time they did it without Julie Ertz. And I think that is maybe the most impressive thing to me is that again, they were maybe what you would consider to be shorthanded and they successfully pulled this scheme off. What did you see there, John? Cause I know we were both at that game. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, like in the, in the rare times that we've seen North Carolina lose over the past few years, it's usually one of those, those games where they've had 20 shots and just didn't miss uh, or didn't hit the frame, or the goalkeeper stood on their head. And that's not what we saw. Chicago won this game one nothing, but it probably could have been 3 nothing. And North Carolina never really threatened Chicago, which is unbelievable when you look at the firepower that North Carolina has, that they couldn't break Chicago down, I think, is the real story of that game. And, you know, you mentioned the the tactical twist. It was really impressive. And this was a this is this was a big pet peeve of mine um, coming out of the 2019 season. I could not for the life of me understand why teams weren't willing to take more risks against North Carolina. You knew you were going to get blown out of the water and yet teams still wouldn't try anything daring against them. And so they would just sit there and take their beating. And it was really uh, nice to see. It was refreshing that a team went out there and decided, hey, we're going to try this different. And, you know, we can get into the semantics of, of how we would label this type of formation. I think I would probably say it was more like a 4-4-2 uh, off balance with the way that Hill was dropping back on uh, on the one side. But it was just nice to see somebody try something different against them because, 
North Carolina has been so dominating and it, it, it's been frustrating to me just as an observer to see so many teams just willing to, to try to play them heads up and get their teeth kicked in. Right. And I know for me watching that, it's not as if North Carolina didn't get into some dangerous spaces at times. Um, it was as if they were relying on, like you said, taking some risks relying on the formation to do the work in the middle of the field, but they also placed a lot of trust in the individual efforts of their back line. Um, and I mm -hmm. thought that Tierna Davidson had a very good game. Sarah Gordon had a good game. Casey Kruger had a good game. You could point to all of them, including Aaron Wright, who was really kind of playing more of a winger role, but um, they all had moments where they had to step up and clean up messes on their own. And every single one of them did. So it felt like a mixture of a good game plan and exceptional execution in the, in the back of the field for them. Um, from North Carolina's effort, I'm going to ask you this. I don't know if this is true. This is just a thought that I had when I was watching the game. So Paul Riley made a lot of subs in that second half. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, I was watching this and it was, again, it was very hot Chicago. It's harder to hold that kind of a rigid defensive system over a full 90 minutes in that heat. It felt to me like in the second half, maybe around the 55th, 60th minute that North Carolina was starting to do some of the things they wanted to do with the players they had on the field. And I wondered a little bit if the substituting, because there was some yanking that kind of happened maybe that maybe threw some of that off. And I'm not sure that those substitutes actually helped the courage in this instance. Do you think that it's possible that you know, as a substituting philosophy, there was maybe a little bit too much going on there? I don't know. I think it's, it's always tricky. I get frustrated because I always feel like coaches wait too long to use their substitutes. They treat them as, as this rare resource, which number one, I, I suppose they are in a sense, but you could still use two of your three subs and keep one in reserves. And this year you've got five to play with. So there's no real excuse, but the flip side of that is that when you watch uh, in a normal situation, when you watch like an international friendly, as soon as they get deep into those substitutions, the game plan just gets thrown out the window because the game just becomes uh, totally chaotic. So I can, I can absolutely understand that and and I guess it probably sounds like I'm making opposing points, but I always think that coaches really should be making their first sub around the 60, 65th minute. And a lot of teams you don't a lot of times you don't see coaches making those subs until like the 80th minute. And that drives me up a wall. Um but I I would agree with the sentiment that North Carolina did start to work their way into the match a little bit. Now part of that is just a natural ebb and flow. Matches go through that where teams get on the ball a little bit more frequently. And especially if you're holding a lead, I think there's kind of this psychological tendency to, to sit back a little bit more and maybe not press it. So I think maybe Chicago was, was kind of suffering from that mentality a little bit in the second half, but um, you know, Williams did get in for, for one good opportunity and uh, you know, for Chicago uh, they were lucky that, that she skied it pretty high over the bar. And then there were some really good second efforts. Uh, you mentioned Davidson, who um, made a couple of really good plays in the middle. Uh, Sarah Gordon kind of got wrong-footed at one point. And it was interesting because she was kind of like falling and still managed to get a toe out and knock a ball away that was going to be a through ball and probably allow North Carolina to get in behind. So I think it was kind of a combination of factors. Yeah, I agree. So for both of these teams. So I'll ask you the Chicago question. Then I'll ask you the North Carolina question. So for Chicago, this feels a little bit like this is the team that they've been talking about for mm -hmm. the past couple of weeks or months, years, even right? right. This is the idea is that they are um, organized. They are good at their ball winning. They do a lot of, of working together in that back line in that midfield. And then they win a lot of games one to nothing. Do you think that what you saw this weekend, do you think to yourself, okay, this group, they've got enough going on here that this is going to be enough? Or do you still think there may be like one piece away? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that, that stick out to me if we try to translate this week's uh, results to the long term. I think one, the um, 
Sarah Waldmo being in the lineup again uh, and not using Danny Colaprico was an interesting choice. And so you do kind of wonder if, if Chicago stays at full strength, does that mean Colaprico sees less minutes this year, which, you know, for, for how important she's been to this club uh, over the past five years, that would be an interesting choice. And I do think that there's still one player away on the attacking end. So if we take this last game, as an anomaly where Hill is being used specifically to serve this defensive purpose. Um, what does Chicago do when they get into a game where they're going to play uh, somebody in a more traditional four, three, three, obviously Dames has shown a proclivity to using Hill. Uh, she seems to be one of his, his favorite players. Personally, I'd like to see Doniak get some more minutes. I thought the Watt Pew Doniak front line was uh, some of Chicago's best attacking play this year and if not Doniak, then they probably still need to bring somebody in if they really want to be a contender you know I think they 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 definitely have the talent to be one of those six playoff teams you know can they get back to a final um, or possibly even winning a final I think that's probably is going to take one more player yeah I think I agree with that and I think the one other thing I'll say about that is watching that game especially watching someone like Mallory Pugh play um, for as good as she has been, and she's been really good, mm-hmm. she still kind of looks like a player that is getting used to playing games week in and week out and not even just fitness wise. Cause her fitness looks great, but more like when you're on a breakaway, is her head on a swivel or is she just got both eyes on goal? That sort of a thing. And that will come. Yeah. Right. I would just say though, with that, there were two separate times yesterday and you know, we were lucky that we got to see the game in person. And so when you see it in person, it's a different experience. You, you see different things. You have a, obviously a broader lens and you can kind of watch the different parts of the field that you want to watch. And there were two separate times where Pew had made bursting runs up the field and had absolutely no help. Um, I thought there were, there were a couple of different times where Kaylee Watt made the wrong run and didn't open herself up for Pew. And then there was another time where Pew went to, to switch the field to go wing to wing, you know, which is, is usually a pretty effective ball when you can find that, uh, that, that, uh, change of changing the point of attack like that. And Hill just did not go up the field on the transition. And you could see there was one time where Pew literally is making that run up the left side, starts to come to the middle, doesn't get the run out of Watt that she wants. So she decides to keep going, looks up, Hill has not made the run up the field and she ends up all the way over near the right touch line. And she's actually dribbled 50 yards East West um, because she just doesn't have anybody coming up the field to help her. And so, you know, I, I think she needs a little bit more help up there. Yep. I think I'm with you on that one. I think that I think that uh, that will improve over time, but maybe you need someone who can be on the uptick a little bit quicker. All yeah. right. North Carolina, same question. Uh are they going to be okay with the group that they have? Do you think, um, was this game kind of a learning experience that they will, as they do probably internalize and unleash on somebody else later, or are they maybe one piece of way from being able to impose that run of play on other teams consistently? Well, I think they probably are going to get dull temper back. Um, you know, we, we've seen that, 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 trickle out a little bit. And I think if she comes back, that's an instant game changer because the, the dull Kemper um, Urseg combination is what has allowed them to send their outside backs forward to make that, that uh, midfield square work. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting, you mentioned the subs earlier that when Riley subbed, he took Mewis from the 10 back to the six. And I really think that's where she belongs. I think she's a better deep line playmaker because then she can pick apart passes or pick apart defenses with her passing. And then she can also sneak up for those long distance shots. And I think they have other options to play alongside Dabinia in those dual tens. You could play Hamilton there. You could play Mace there. Um, and I just think that it's more important that you get that six combination. And I thought North Carolina in years past was best when they had um, O'Sullivan and Mewis and those dual sixes. And I think that's where they need to go heading forward. That actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I remember thinking that like for like switch of McDonald for Hamilton, I was like, it just feels like you're not really changing the game here. You're more putting just a different person in that same position. Um, so yeah, that was a great game. I'm so glad we got to see it live. It felt very, it felt a little bit like a chess match and, and the, that was great mm-hmm. to see this early in the season. All right. So moving on. 
to the next game of the weekend. Um, I don't know if this was, I don't know if this was so much a chess match as it was what Gotham is doing is fascinating to me. So Gotham mm-hmm. wins their game at Red Bull arena against OL rain one to nothing on an early strike from Ethioma Anumanu. Um, perhaps the larger story of this game is OL rain's inability to find the equalizer. Right. Um, and I don't know if we'll get into the OL rain part of it because we all know that OL rain is like basically in their preseason right now. There are, there are so much change that's going to be happening with that team. I don't know exactly how much you say this is going to impact the greater arc of their season, but so <laughs> the story with Gotham, and this is what you see on Twitter. This is what other people are saying is their defense is so far out um what's the right way to put this they are exceeding their expected goals against at a really wild rate right now so my first question is is that something that is going to oh two sides of it right is this going to regress is gotham maybe going to have like four games where they're conceding two or three goals just because it all starts to come back to them or are they figuring out how to do this exact thing better every week. What do you think, John? I think it's a good question. Um, because you know, you mentioned OL not finishing. I literally wrote in my notes, OL created about a million chances. <laughs> um, but I would say a couple of things about Gotham. Uh, number one, if you ever get a chance, um, whether in person, uh, or as much as you can on a broadcast, spend a game just watching Mandy Freeman play because Part of exceeding the the XG, as you mentioned it, is last-ditch tackles. And I think, for my money, Mandy Freeman is one of the best in the entire league at making those last-ditch tackles. And the thing that I absolutely love about watching her play is that she does it just the same, you know, back in the days when they were losing a game 5-0, or now where it's 0-0 or 1-0. She plays uh, just as hard in both of those. And so I think that her effort uh, probably allows them uh, perhaps to exceed where they should be statistically. I think obviously they have excellent goalkeeping. I know that, you know, the Canadians obviously weren't, weren't in the league this weekend. And um, so, you know, they didn't, they didn't have their normal setup, but um, you know, if your keeper is playing well in, in this league uh, with the, the quality of, of goalkeeping overall, you can exceed your XG. I made a joke uh, this weekend on Twitter that I I feel like XG this year is the trust the process uh, of 2019, because that was the phrase that we heard constantly in this year. XG is all we're hearing about. Um, But I also think if you really want to kind of understand what it means and why it should matter, um, Charles Olney, our friend, wrote a really nice article this week, which went into some of the depth. Now, he was using it to, to maybe criticize is too strong of a word, but to point out that he didn't think Orlando would stay on the same course that they're on over the course of a season. But I thought he did a really nice job explaining expected goals and how it works and why it should matter. Right. And I do think it's significant as well, because as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, and it, it, as you said, and I should have mentioned this at the top of the show, that um, U.S. players were available for this weekend, as I believe were all other internationals, but specifically Canadians were mm-hmm. called into camp on Saturday. So there were no Canadians available this weekend. And that's probably going to be a major player in the Houston game when we get there. But um, right. Uh, but with Gotham, you know, they didn't have VN. That's part of it. But they are not scoring a ton of goals themselves Mm -hmm. despite being kind of lauded as this team with a lot of attacking firepower. And what I don't know is, is it because players are not playing in the best parts of the field? Is it, is this that, you know, TTP trust the process, it will continue to gel. Um, Or is the style of play not exactly clicking for the personnel because over the last couple of weeks, we have not seen some of that hitting that one, you know, Gotham that game four three in the Challenge Cup against North Carolina. Yeah, you know, th- th- we have a, we actually have a piece up on the site right now on Paige Monahan and Gotham. I had a chance last week to talk to to Monahan and uh, and Gotham's assistant coach Becca Moros, and they both admitted 
that they still haven't found the right combinations up top. And the, the thing about Sky Blue, which at one point was a team that struggled to even put together 18 players for a game day roster, is, you know, in 2021, they actually have more talent than they can get on the field. And right now they essentially have five starters up top. Um, you know, you mentioned Ify, uh and her game and her goal, and I thought she was terrific. She hasn't been uh, a regular starter at times this year because she's gotten squeezed out of the lineup. They brought Carly Lloyd uh, back. Who, you know, she obviously didn't play in the fall series last year. They got Viennes back from loan uh, on, on her loan from France. They've got Monaghan. They've got Midge Purse probably playing the best soccer of her entire life right now. And so you've got five players for three spots and, you know, you can, you can mess around a little bit and drop Lloyd into the 10, but that's starting to get crowded. You've brought Allie Long into the team. They just signed Bree Pinto. So now the midfield's going to get crowded as well. So, you know, in this, this very weird way that we often say, they have a very nice problem developing. Uh, in Gotham. Sabrina Flores is another one that I think yeah. is, a, is an excellent player and she gets right. squeezed out of the, the lineup quite yeah. often. Yeah. You wonder if maybe, I mean, this is, I don't know if this is in their plan whatsoever, but you wonder if maybe it would serve them well to just get a rotation going and just say, don't take it personally. If you're not starting, you'll probably start the next one. We're going to yeah. rotate and we're going to be really, really fresh. And we're going to use that depth to our advantage because I think that they do have that at this, uh, the argument is there that perhaps maybe not in the central defense, but other than that, they're one of the deeper right. teams of the league. So um, yeah, we'll have to see. So flipping over to OL rain, frustrating game for them. Um, after a frustrating game last week from them, does it matter? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to say this? Because, you know, Lavelle is probably still, you know, learning some new teammates and you've got Marajan coming in and Lisa Mayer coming in. Um, so that team, I, that's a really good way to describe it. Like you did that say that they're still in their preseason. Cause we just don't know where this team is going to be. And you know, the nice part about this season is all you got to do is finish in the top six. And if you figured it out by the fall, you're going to be able to generate enough points to get in the top six. And then, and then obviously where you finish in the playoffs is what really matters to most teams. So um, I do think that um, just to, you know, flip this over to the OL rain side of the game, I do think that we should mention too, that Angelina probably should have been sent off. I thought that, you know, we've talked about goal or, or I'm sorry, refereeing a few times this year. It's always a little hard when you hear the coaches complaining about it because they obviously have a vested interest and, you know, anytime they're complaining about the officiating, um, you always got to take a little, little bit of a grain of salt because they're probably upset about the result. Um, but they have, there have been some complaints this year about player safety. And I, I do think that, um, that was, that was not a good situation that happened because she basically horse collared somebody, um, on her second foul. The first one was a Jersey tug, which that's it, not a necessarily a dangerous foul, but it's certainly a yellow, uh, but her second one was pretty bad. And I think the, the center official just didn't want to make that call. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I also think it's interesting that that came in a game against Gotham because I think actually one of Gotham's superpowers is that they are quietly one of the more physical te teams in the entire league. Um, but that's the whole thing, right? You know, physicality is good to a point and it's up to the ref to, to rein all of that in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for the rain, you know, they'll have Lavelle and Rapino going out. They'll have Marajan and Lace Omer coming in. Uh, you look at this and you say, okay, maybe OL rains defense. They're going to get, you know, they're going to yeah. get Celia back probably when she is, is back from injury. That will be helpful. They played Madison Hammond to outside back. That's not really where she's supposed to be. Um, but maybe you say, okay, maybe with, all of the attacking firepower, they win this game three, one, instead of right. losing it one, nothing. Um, it's a point unproven as of yet, but no reason not to believe that that's coming. And Dan um, Laletta mentioned this week too, that uh, Lulu Barnes might get moved into the middle or, or maybe should. Yeah. Get or that might middle, be the best so. option for yeah. them. Right. I, I agree with that as well. I think that they've just been dealing with not having a lot of outside back options and therefore are there perhaps moving some of their better center defenders out wide. Right. Right. Um, so moving on to the last game of Saturday, this will be the last game 
of this section. This is the one that we might not spend a ton of time on just because this was probably the most sort of routine expected result that we got this weekend. Portland hosted Louisville. They won that game three to nothing on goals from Angela Salem in her first goal since 2016. How about that? That's a great story. Um, Rocky Rodriguez and Lindsay Horan going into this game. It felt like Louisville themselves were trying to manage expectations because they went through kind of a hellish (laughs) trip (laughs) out West. I think I actually, I was impressed. I was very impressed with Christy Holly putting it out there right away. Their social media team did a good job of kind of explaining what was going on. I think they set the right tone, kind of knowing they were walking into something that was a bit of a tall order. Um, to explain a little bit, it sounds like they actually added them on Twitter. It sounded like they had some United flights that got canceled. The coaching staff uh, made it to Portland late on Thursday. They were supposed to leave on Thursday with the idea that they wanted to give themselves uh, two days to get acclimated to the time zone difference because this was the late match. So they didn't want to feel like they were kicking off at 10 30 PM. Um, they said, I think Chrissy Holly said that the team was supposed to leave before the coaches. They were not on the same flight. They're like, that's fine. Coaching staff arrives at the airport. The team is still there. <laughs> um, they all get on different flights. There are two different flights for the team. One flight for the coaching staff, coaching staff makes it to Portland in the middle of the night between Thursday and Friday. Uh, I think that the team did not make it there until Friday afternoon, Friday evening, after spending a night in Houston of all places, I think they got one light training session in and that was it. So not really set up to have a great game. I mean, got to ask the question, right, John, do you think that there was some, there was anything controllable there, or is that just an act of weather God and an airline? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've, how many times have we seen this? There was the, there was the Houston situation where they, I think they were told to go to the airport uh, right as the hurricane was coming in. Cause they were trying to get them out of there to get them to wherever they needed to be. Um, you know, I know Chicago's had some, some nightmare travel scenarios, we saw obviously the the rescheduled semifinals a few years back because there was the weather issue in North Carolina. Um, so th- that's really, really tough to, to say whether that was controlled. I would guess not. Right. And so Louisville walks into something where they were going to struggle, except, you know, there were still some bright spots for them. Michelle Betos had a good game. Michelle Betos is a really fascinating player in that she doesn't, have like I'm, I'm not trying to 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 put her down in any way but she doesn't necessarily have the best vertical or mm-hmm. the best hands or the best reaction saves in this league but her footwork to the point of it just feeling like people are shooting at her all the time is exceptional she is is quietly a goalkeeper with some of the best positioning in the entire league and so she turns a lot of shots into what appears to be very easy saves so she actually stopped this from getting worse, despite the fact that the Salem goal, she probably could have done better on, but she had a good game. You see the value of, you know, I think some people had some raised eyebrows when they picked her up in the expansion draft. Mm-hmm, you see what sure. she brings to the team. It's a steady hand. It's a, you know, a calm performance. It's a sense of leadership. She's been in the league since its inception. She was able to kind of guide them through this and keep it respectable. Um, on Portland's side, one of the more interesting things was because the Canadians were out, Christine Sinclair was not there. So we saw Crystal Dunn at the 10. Um, Portland doesn't really change their formation a lot, and they don't really play with a center offense. They really tend to stick with that 4-4-2. And so Dunn was the playmaker at the top of that sort of diamond. And um, I thought she did a nice job. She created space. I think it's not shocking that, the three goals did come from midfielders. I think that Louisville, one of their biggest gaps in their roster right now actually comes in that defensive midfield position. And I think that teams are finding a lot of space in their midfield. And so you saw these kind of longer shots, the Rodriguez, the Rodriguez goal was, was a little bit closer range, but the Angela Salem goal was from the top of the box. The Lindsay Horan goal was quite odd to be completely honest. I think it was an intended cross that, Arguably, there was a foul in the box against, uh, I think, Simone Charlie. You maybe could call a foul there if you were feeling kind to Louisville. But um, 
So I, I don't really have a ton to say about this game. I don't think it was a pretty quintessential Portland performance. They, their uh, forwards uh, made runs that created gaps in the Louisville defense, their midfield imposed, especially in the attacking midfield for them, defensive midfield part for Louisville. And they got those goals out of it. Um, I don't know any, do you have any major takeaways from this one? I would just say that on the the point, because I saw somebody else make this point on Twitter, but I can't remember. It might have been Caitlin Best, but somebody else had said that that Portland doesn't really change. And, um, you know, maybe not right now, but if you look at them historically, especially with Parsons in 2017, late in the year, they made a pretty radical change. One that actually took Allie Long out of the starting lineup. And uh, then they went obviously all the way to the final and they won, they won it. And so I think that if you go post-Olympics, if there's any sort of a feeling like they still don't have things worked out, um, he he not only has the confidence in himself to make that change, but I think that the players have that confidence in him as well and will trust him. You know, he might he might take a look at that and say, hey, we're not getting the maximum value out of our talent on the field and, and we're going to switch formations and we'll go to a three back or something else or five in the midfield. Um, so I think, you know, he's not only capable, but he's willing to do that. Um, so we could see a change like that late in the season if, if they, if they don't feel like they're hitting on all cylinders. Yeah, I actually agree with that. You're right about that. And I think that, right, because we have seen sort of the crystal Dunn project going well, but not, you know, it's not earth scorching quite right. yet. Um, maybe they tinker with that to say, okay, maybe we need her a little closer to goal. Maybe we need her a little right. bit further out wide. They kind of make some decisions there. Um, you're right. And you're also right that they did do some of the three back in 2019 as well when mm-hmm. their uh, available players kind of warranted that. So that's a good point. I think you're right that we will see some looks from Portland that will be different. I understand why they didn't feel the need to change it for this one. I'm sure they felt for pretty sure. confident they could just execute yeah. and take care of it. Um, so yeah, so Louisville kind of like last week, do a short memory. You're going to have games that you can win this year. This was just not one of them. Um, they have some reinforcements coming, right? They have Ebony Salmon coming in. They have Gemma, Gemma Bonner was available. Um, they might have another signing coming through yes. um, sometime in the next couple of weeks. And we'll kind of see how that all works together. Cause as I said, um, those people coming in, we've got some forwards, we got some defenders. I'm interested in the midfield. So we'll just kind of see how that goes for them. So that was Saturday's games. And we're going to take a little bit of a break before we turn to Sunday and a little bit of league rule shenanigans. We're going to talk a little bit about the discovery process as well. So stay tuned. And welcome back to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. Again, I am your host, Claire Watkins. I am joined by John Halloran. First things first, go ahead and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you find uh, our podcast on whatever your preferred streaming service is. Leave us a nice review. It helps people find us, helps people find the show and find more good women's soccer content. So before talking about the two Sunday games, we're going to talk about a little bit of news Um, One that I definitely wanted to mention was that PSG Paris Saint-Germain did win the French league this weekend. It was a little bit almost perfunctory, but really they kind of left it down to the wire. Congrats to PSG. It was the first time I believe in 14 years that Lyon did not win the domestic trophy. It felt like an anomaly. It felt a little bit like a breakthrough. There's going to be a lot of changes between those two teams, some of which are PSG players going to Lyon, mm-hmm. um, possibly and vice versa. They're going to look very different next year. So it felt a little bit like a cap to a long campaign from, from Paris. And so congrats to them. And then the one thing I do want to talk about, because we got a little bit more news on this today, and I think probably this is going to come out on Tuesday. It's Sunday right now. We'll see what more news comes out of this this week um, because it's a little bit in flux. But we did get an update on the Olivia Moultrie lawsuit, um, which has been kind (laughs) of long and complicated. And I haven't covered it a lot simply because there are games happening. And once we get to her being able to play for a team, excited to talk about that. But a lot of this is very back and forth. Um, But the funny thing that happened today, and I think it's a little bit of a springboard to talk about a larger issue, is we got some pretty big 
rivalry shenanigans between O.L. Reign and the Portland Thorns in that. So there was the temporary restraining order on the league that was granted. Probably we're about at the end of the two week period of, of when that was granted. The league argued that that did not apply to discovery and therefore rejected Portland's initial bid to sign Moultrie under the discovery rule. Turns out that that has now been reverted. I think we are probably going to see some amendments to the discovery rules that will allow Moultrie to be signed unless it gets revoked by the court or the CBA gets ratified. And that also has an 18 plus rule. It's a lot in flux still right now. But the thing that happened today is that we found out that it was not actually Portland who successfully got a discovery claim on Olivia Moultrie. It was O.L. Reign because they famously were number one in that discovery list. So they sold the rights back to Portland. So so first of all, John, you have to laugh, right? A little (sighs) bit. Yeah. Um, But also, if you have a league where you have a player in your own academy system yep. that you have to buy back from a rival, yep. that is a broken system, right? hundred percent. It just shows what a total farce the, the whole system is. And I'll, I'll tell you something else, which I was in a room um, at one point years ago, and it was right after the teams had to announce their rosters. And so this was right after teams had to offer contracts or not. And I saw a player sitting there coming up with names that they could put on their discovery list simply to pry money or picks or whatever out of other teams when they wanted to sign those players back later on. And so, you know, they were literally saying, okay, you know, there's, there's 20 players on this roster. Who do we think was the 21st player, the player that they're most going to want to sign once they have an injury and then claiming discovery on them just so that they could stick it to that team once that moment came along. And so the whole process is, is, is rather ridiculous. So are you an advocate for doing away with it entirely? I know it's considered one of the parody uh, you know, it's right. an idea of a parity rule where you don't just let teams sign anybody at any time, but it ends up just being kind of silly most of the time. And it gets in the way of good players playing in this league sometimes. Right. And I think there's, there, there's a case to be made for when, and I don't know if you remember this, um, but when, when everybody originally thought Mallory Pugh was going to come into the league. Right. Uh, which ended up being a year before she did. There's for players who maybe are skipping the draft process. There's maybe a discussion to be had about creating some sort of mechanism for parity or something like that. But as we see in here, as you mentioned, this is a player who's more or less already part of the Portland Thorns, and for them to get held hostage or extorted. Um, for for resources to keep their own player is is fairly ridiculous, and I think it kind of shows the flaws in the system as it is as it is currently constructed. Right, and I think my final thought on it, because I've said before, you know, great if Moultrie can play. If she can't, she will play eventually. But the one thought that I do just have, and it was actually put to me by somebody else, and I think this is a good point, which is. Sometimes I think the league gets in its own way of Mm -hmm. player goodwill. If you have a player that wants to play in your league and maybe comes with whatever following or whatever mech, you know, whatever team behind Mm -hmm. them, and you make it so difficult for them to get the thing that they want. And then when they do finally maneuver around the rules to get that thing, you say, okay, promote our league, play in our league, feel good about our league. I'm I'm not sure that holding players at arm's length, whether it's this player or somebody else, is the best way to go about this as a league that wants to remain competitive with the rest of the world. You know, Moultrie is stuck because she can't play elsewhere either, but going so far as having to go through this entire thing, if she did have that option, maybe that's a player that the league loses. 
Yeah. And I think there's a balance because, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to end up like the French league where you have two teams and everybody else, because that's not really fun to watch week in and week out. And the NWSL, for whatever flaws it might have, is fun to watch every week. Um, You never know what's going to happen. And it is competitive from from top to bottom. Um, But on the other hand, you do want to make sure that teams do feel some external pressure to provide a good enough environment that they are attractive to bringing in players on their own. So you don't want it to be a situation where, you know, teams at the bottom of uh, resources can run a really cheap operation. And we've seen that from time to time in the history of the league where nobody in their right mind would want to go there unless they were forced to go there. So you don't want that either. And I, I do think you need to strike a balance, but boy, as soon as I saw that story pop up this afternoon, um, it, it definitely, it had everybody laughing because right. it's, a, it's an absurd situation. Yep, exactly. Um, I do enjoy it when some of these funny little off season things pop in, in the middle of the season, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it comes from a place of, of ridiculousness and, and wanting it to maybe be a little bit clearer and a little bit better, but let's get back to games. Um, these two Sunday games, I think are a nice little counterpoint, maybe to some of the, or even maybe a further argument for some of the Saturday games, because I do think legitimately looking at which teams are doing a good job of maybe winning gritty, picking up points, Mm -hmm. getting results. I think that, you know, we talked about how six playoff spots is a lot. I think there's going to be a good team that misses out on that sixth spot. And I think that we've seen more of that this week that I really think that there are seven or eight competitive teams in this league this year. And so let's, I mean, let's take a look. Let's talk about Washington versus Orlando. Uh, one and two in the table still are after a one, one draw uh, first goal was scored by Ashley hatch quickly answered by Taylor Korniak. Um, I want to say some nice stuff about the spirit real quick. Cause I think that we have talked a lot about some of the things that still need work for them, but they obviously have some things that are working. Uh, one of those things is I think that we did talk about this last week a little bit, but they're doing a good job of at least having an identity of working very hard. And I think that that is a result getter in this league. Sometimes Um, Kelly O'Hara had a very good match this weekend. Trinity Robin was very effective. Again, Ashley Sanchez does not quit. She is a player that is always moving and always looking for, for ways to attack a defense and, even if she doesn't always make the right run or make the exact right decision, she'll be coming right back. And I think that that is an underrated reason why they have been getting results over their recent games. Um, Tori Huster probably should have been on the May best 11. That is a player that I think has been quietly having a very good season so far as well. However, This game, it was end-to-end, again, very, very hot. I think it was 97, 98 degrees. They put together a really nice performance. Both teams put together a really nice performance despite this. Um, So I think you want to talk about the things going well. Some of the things that could be better are kind of the same. Washington was on the front foot. They couldn't get two or three goals. They just got the one. Um, Orlando... I think just had some moments. They both teams had some bad giveaways. Uh, the, the Korniak response was so quick, actually, that it was not shown originally on the stream. Uh, it was, that's the second time actually that's happened to Orlando specifically. I think sometimes they get these real quick goals and that people aren't ready for them. So this came off, it was either a punt or a goal kick that got intercepted midfield, um, sent back up to Taylor Korniak and Korniak made a very nice, a uh, very nice shot to the to the post to get the equalizer. Um, so, John, I know you were focused on the other game a little bit more, but bigger questions. Um, we've seen Orlando respond to other teams executing against them multiple right. times this season. And I, t- I, I put this forward last week as well, which is, you know, they're going to be losing Alex Morgan for a while. Um, one thing actually that, that I did hear this week, I think it was from Chicago's Rory Dames, was that 
theoretically the U S players should be back for two more NWSL games before they officially leave for the Olympics. I don't know how much those players will be playing. I don't know how many, if there's going to be minute restrictions or what exactly. So this is not the last we are seeing of the U S players before the Olympics, but it'll be, they'll have their eyes on a sort of a different prize when they do come back. Um, but that defense, that Orlando defense and that midfield, the thought that I had watching this game is I remember 2019, 2018 thinking there is no one connecting what they're trying to do in the back to what they're doing in the attack. And that just no longer seems true. So I asked Pardeep this last week. I'll ask you this, John, is Orlando the real deal? Are they in the top six at the end of the season? Do you think, or they're competing for it at the very least, right? Oh, for sure. Um, I think the, the thing that you mentioned about them coming back to score so quickly that it was missed on the broadcast speaks to the change in mentality. And that for me is the most important thing. And I I know Julia Poe wrote a piece about this, um, this past week and and talked about some of the things they've, that they've changed, uh, in their locker room. But the, as you mentioned, kind of like, you know, the 2019 Orlando pride, there were a lot of players yelling at a lot of other players and they would concede a goal and self-destruct and concede two, three, four, five, and everybody's blaming everybody else. And to go from that to, Hey, we've just conceded. Let's get one back, you know, within a minute or two is, I think just speaks to that, that change in mentality and the fact that, Hey, we've conceded. We're not going to fall apart now. Uh, we're going to we're going to work our way back into this match, and uh, I think that's that's a really important change because mentality means a lot in in a group environment like that. And uh, there's been to whatever extent. Again, we we're five games in here, um, but there definitely seems to be a cultural shift inside of that organization. Agreed, and you know, they are the only team not to lose a game so far. They, as we said, you know, Alex Morgan will be out for a little bit um, during the Olympics. Marta will be out for a little bit during the Olympics, but the people that are staying, right. They didn't have Sydney LaRue for this game, but they'll be getting her back. She was, I think had a little bit of a knock. Um, Seems like Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris are going to be with the team for the full season. Mm Mm-hmm. Allie Riley um, will be also leaving for the Olympics, but she's another person who has added kind of a veteran presence to that back line. Um, It does just, you're right. It seems like there's been a mixture of a mentality change, people that they're bringing in, but there's been, it seems like a buy-in from some of the team's veterans as well. That feels like it has kind of let some fresh air into the room. Yeah, I think that story like two weeks ago of Morgan bringing Korniak in for the one-on-one really, really says something about that. Yep, exactly. And credit to Mark Skinner too, because it's, it's rare sometimes to have that kind of a change happen under the, under the coaching of one particular person for the team to look so different. I bet maybe even having an extended amount of time in 2020 to work on those things might've not been bad for the team. Um, but yeah, credit to Mark Skinner for completely kind of flipping the script here on them. Um, though again, you know, it, you could argue that you could really say that the spirit had the upper hand for much of this game. Um, but it felt like a match between two contenders and the fact that we're talking about Orlando in that way, is a bit of, I'm sure they're not just happy with it, right? They want to keep it going. And I think there's also something to be said for picking up as many points as they possibly can in the early part of the season. Um, You're going to have some teams surging later and Orlando, as much of a cushion as they can build for themselves, I think the the better off they are. Um, But also credit to the spirit. They haven't lost a game in three. So they're also putting together a bit of a campaign. It'll be fascinating to see what they do without O'Hara and Sonnet and Sullivan for, uh, for a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It was a good game. Uh, I was very impressed. Like I said, considering how adverse the weather was, but yeah, good game. So moving on to the last game of the weekend, um, a little bit, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I had this on a small screen while I was mostly focused on the Washington versus Orlando match. Um, 
John was focused on this one a little bit more. I will, I'll, I'll come in with my, with my questions here, but why don't you just kind of give me the rundown on how it felt to watch that Kansas city Houston game? Well, let me just tell you, it didn't look any better on the big screen. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was a very sloppy game teams that struggled to put together three passes. It was also a very physical game. I think, I think we had four yellow cards. Um, although I think they were all on Houston's part. Houston <laughs> um, had a lot so, of fouls called against them. Yes. Right. So, so maybe that, that physicality was not uh, uh, mutual, but it, it just was not a, a terrifically fun game to watch. Uh, Kansas city did look like they, they went up first. There was a goal. Uh, Larroquette had scored in the 25th minute, which was a, a terrific header by the way, but adjudged offsides. I, I've seen the replay a couple of times. I can't see it as offsides. They came back on the on the broadcast and they showed it. They said, yep, okay, it was the right call. Uh, it's pretty tough to tell from the angle that it was taken at, which was not even um, with, with where Houston was holding their line. Um, so I don't really know how you judge that. So that goal got got disallowed. And then Kansas City, and I know you you tweeted this as well, but Kansas city probably feels a little hard done because uh, they had, you know, a a semi shout for, for a handball on Katie Naughton in the 79th minute. And 30 seconds later, the balls in the back of their net put in there by Katie Naughton. And so, um, you know, might have felt like they should have been up one, nothing at that point. Instead they're down one, nothing. There was another one too, about, 20 minutes before that uh, in the 60th minute where A-Rod got clipped by Oyster in the box. And I don't think it was really enough for a penalty, but, you know, they had two half shouts uh, for a penalty. It was a a fairly even game. Um, Although Kansas city also had one play, uh, this really bad disastrous communication between Elizabeth ball um, and Abby Smith, where, (laughs) <laughs> neither one of them cleared it and the ball just popped out um, to Houston and, and, you know, lucky for, for Kansas city, but uh, you know, the Houston player missed a shot. Um, just not a good game of football, very sloppy, uh, very chaotic. And uh, you know, Houston probably a little lucky to come out of there with a win, but, you know, as you mentioned that, that, that gritty theme that you were talking about earlier, uh, they Houston probably didn't deserve to win against Chicago uh, last week. Uh, I think a draw probably would have been a more fair result based on on what that game had. But now they've got six points instead of maybe two. Um, so they've kind of continued on that theme of of 2020, where they're they're pushing through and they're getting results even in games where maybe they aren't playing particularly well. Right. It seems to me like Houston, and I said this last week, and I think you can probably equate this to this match as well, which is that they've won some games and they've lost some games, but they've yet to win a game that they were dominating. And I guess this is a question that I have not because I'm certain I'm like trying to lead. I don't know the answer to this. Right. Do you say to Houston, you're getting the job done you know, and I think we should mention the Canadians being out. There's no team that needs their Canadians more than Houston does. Not having Nichelle Prince, not having Sophie Schmidt, right. not having Alicia Chapman. They were missing a lot of people from their starting 11. Um, yeah. You know, I, this is going to sound derogatory. I really don't mean it that way. But I think we're so used to seeing games affected by the absences of U.S. players that I wrote in my notes, you know, this, this seems to be a rare game where the Canadian absences were making a big difference because not only the three you mentioned for Houston, but Kansas city being without Pickett, Scott and Listro and, you know, um, Listro and Scott uh, and Pickett, that's pretty much their midfield in a normal week. And Pickett has been one of the surprises of 2021. So they, they were, you know, missing her in that attacking role. Um, the, uh, the thing, though, with Houston, you know, you mentioned them maybe not winning but not playing well. I remember so vividly from 2020 watching their press. They had this high press. They would force teams into mistakes, and then they would repress. So when a team would manage to get out of that first press, they would immediately repress, 
into a new area of the field. And they were so good at that. And I just have not seen that in 2021, certainly not at the level at which they were executing it in 2020. And so, you know, to whatever extent that was at the heart of their success a year ago, that does seem to be missing. And they're grinding out results and good for them. But I really feel like part of what made them who they were a year ago uh, hasn't quite been there in 2021. Yeah. And I think that maybe they they had some some signing motion this week as well. They signed Maria Sanchez mm-hmm. to a short term deal that maybe you were saying you were on the right, right. intimating perhaps that Sanchez is maybe deciding. This is a little right. bit of Sanchez deciding if she wants to stay. Um, and and so they signed her. They signed Jasmine Spencer. So attacking firepower. They're maybe looking at some different people to be able to reinforce. I don't know if it's to get quality in front of goal or just that same idea of more people who they think that can commit to that full team press that really does start from the top line for them. Um, But yeah, that was going to be my question, which is, do you say hats off to Houston for getting the job done? Um, You know, you stay in it, you went on a set piece. That's how you win games in the NWSL. Or do you say, I don't know if Houston is showing up in the same way as some of these other teams? Well, I think, uh, number one, they're going to really be hurt, I think, a lot more than, than we anticipate during the Olympic break because, you know, when whether it's their Canadians, it, it looks like Campbell's going to make the team based on recent call-ups. Uh, Mewis in the bubble, we don't, I guess we don't really know. Mewis seems like a possibility for an alternate spot, which will hurt Houston anyway, right? Exactly. That's a good point. And then, so when you look at that, um, when you look at daily, they're going to be missing some big pieces and as good as I think their first 11 are kind of what you're talking about with, with some of these signings, they're not a super deep team and that's going to be a real tricky road for them during that Olympic break um, to, to stay competitive and not fall behind the pace. Because I think a lot of other teams who are going to be missing players have from years past already had to develop some depth of squad that Houston, just because, you know, traditionally they weren't as strong, they didn't have to worry about that as much. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I mean, the one other name I would put in there is I think that Nichelle Prince has been very important mm-hmm. to, to what they're trying to do. And we saw her get on the score sheet last week, but she had been due for that. The activity rate that she has on her side of the field, I think is immense. And I think that she stretches defenses. And so I think she's also someone that they are going to struggle to replace. So final look here. I'm just going to run down the table real quick. We've got, we're going into the first international break of the season Um, A little bit of a breather. We don't have NWSL games until the weekend of June 19th and 20th. Here is how everything sits at the moment. Oh, actually, you know what? I got this wrong. In first is still the Orlando Pride. In second, actually, are the Portland Thorns on nine points. Washington is only sitting on eight. They are in third. Gotham is in fourth. We got three teams on seven points. Gotham, Houston, and Chicago in that order. Uh, we have three teams still sitting on four points. That's North Carolina, OL Reign, and Racing Louisville in that order. And then rounding up the bottom, we have Kansas City, who are still looking for their first win of the season. It looks about like half uh, half the table has played five games, half the table has played four. So for you, John, is there anybody there where you look at this table and you think this does not reflect the quality of this team? That's a really good question because, you know, you mentioned, I think there's probably eight teams that we think are our playoff teams. I, uh, I saw the, the Bethany Balser tweet about the OL rain being written off after four games, which I can't, I, anybody who says that is frankly not worth listening to because it's four games in. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would, I would almost flip the question and just say, that Orlando has so far exceeded expectations that you, you just have to once again, give them credit because it's really remarkable what they've done through five games. Everybody else is about where you'd expect. I think a lot of us probably coming into the season would have had Portland one and Washington two, and they're two and three. And Gotham obviously has been climbing. The dash won the challenge cup last year. Chicago's made the playoffs five seasons in a row. The courage are, uh, 
two-time defending champs. So right there, I mean, we know that this year, as much as I hate a system where you have six out of 10 teams making the playoffs, um, this is a good year for that to happen because you're going to have probably two pretty decent teams not in the playoffs. I agree. I would say that when they made that rule change, I understood it because it's with the anticipation of more expansion. That's all fine. Um, I had the thought though, where I said to myself, it used to be so hard right. to yep. make the NWSL postseason, And I don't like giving that up. However, I think we maybe just doubled the teams who are good enough to do it. So right. that's exciting. That's exciting for the NWSL. It's a good place for them to be in. Um, and part so, of that's the lack of expansion over the past couple of years. Exactly. This is one of those. We did add one team, right? But we'll have two, theoretically two more next year. This sort of intense, we call it like the cauldron of, of talent here is, is very explosive. And I think that this season, honestly, I was hard on the challenge cup, but I think the regular season is going great so far. Um, so as I said, the NWSL is taking a little bit of a break, but we will turn to international play. The U S women's national team has three games to play. Some other teams have some games to play as well. So we will be talking about that. Uh, thank you so much, John. I am your host, Claire Watkins. Shout out to our producer extraordinaire, Jacqueline Purdy. And this has been this week's edition of the equalizer podcast. We'll see you all guys next week.